Welcome to the Alzheimer's Solution Revolution Show with Ralph Sanchez. Ralph's background includes 25 years as a clinician and functional medicine consultant, and he is the best-selling author of The Diabetic Brain and Alzheimer's Disease. Ralph's mission on this show is to bring you the trailblazing information and science that enables you to live younger, longer, and protect yourself and your loved ones from cognitive impairment and dementia as you age. Welcome. This is your host, Ralph Sanchez, and this is episode number 21 here at the Alzheimer's Solution Revolution podcast channel. Great to be back for this episode as I was delayed in bringing it to you by all the usual life and work demands and the extra time it required to put together all the production work for this show, which will be a very intensive overview. And today, I am expanding on the last episode, number 20, titled Estrogen Deficiency in Cardiometabolic Disease Underlies a Woman's Greater Risk for Alzheimer's Disease. This episode, part two of this two-part episode series on the linkages between perimenopausal and postmenopausal estrogen declines in women and the risk for these age-related diseases will focus primarily on types of estrogen and estrogen replacement therapy and their association with an increased risk or a reduced risk for dementia and late-onset Alzheimer's disease. Now, in previous episodes, number 10 and number 11, I talked about estrogen replacement therapy and neurosteroids such as estrogen, progesterone, pregnenolone, and testosterone, and others with regard to their age-associated declines and how hormone replacement therapy supports a healthy aging brain for both women and men. However, I'll make the point here, as I did then, it is not an aging brain alone that leads to the risk for cognitive decline or dementia. Instead, it is all about a complex set of late onset Alzheimer's disease associated risk factors that includes genetic susceptibility variants such as the APOE4 variant, hormones, diet, nutrition, lifestyle, metabolic disease, and sex differences, as well as many others. That may pertain to you as an individual and how that in concert with aging might express in the decline of cognitive function and an eventual diagnosis of dementia. Nevertheless, why another show on the role of estrogen and estrogen replacement therapy in aging and the risk for Late onset Alzheimer's disease. Well, there is yet more information to be shared on the topic that I previously did not speak to or did not expand on, such as endogenous estrogen and phytoestrogens or plant estrogens. And there is also more recent evidence on estrogen replacement therapy published in the last few years. Indeed, today, I'll be providing an overview on 
the estrogen a woman naturally produces throughout her reproductive lifespan termed endogenous estrogen, which was not part of the previous episode, specifically number 10, that focused on the importance of estrogen replacement therapy in women at midlife. The role of endogenous estrogen is not often inserted into the discussion with regard to a woman's risk for late-onset Alzheimer's disease. And it may be an important risk factor to weigh into a personalized risk evaluation for Alzheimer's disease and dementia. I'll also revisit estrogen replacement therapy and more recent studies on estrogen therapy and some very important research findings to be aware of, of how plant estrogens or phytoestrogens may substitute for estrogen replacement therapy. So be prepared for a lengthy and dense overview on all of this here today. First, let me reiterate that the discussion and overview on estrogen deficiency as a risk factor for dementia and late-onset Alzheimer's disease should not be a compartmentalized overview on estrogen's role solely on neurological health. Indeed, it's a very important link. However, as I detailed in the last episode, the role of estrogen in cardiometabolic health is a significant component that connects a woman's vascular health, blood flow to the brain, and atherosclerosis in the risk for brain lesions known as white matter hyperintensities. And those brain lesions are a significant risk factor for cognitive impairment, vascular dementia, and Alzheimer's disease. And for those of you listening in today for the first time who did not listen into that last episode, white matter hyperintensities are areas of high intensity that are observed in brain MRI neuroimaging scans, and they represent a type of brain lesion that are commonly seen in aging individuals, particularly in those that have a history of hypertension and atherosclerosis. And indeed, these white matter hyperintensities are actually very common in middle-aged individuals and people in their early 60s. So it is something that an aging person with hypertension and any kind of vascular disease process needs to be aware of. And the brain damage associated with white matter hyperintensities do represent a significant biomarker linked to the risk for cerebrovascular disease and stroke, vascular dementia, and late-onset Alzheimer's disease. Uncontrolled hypertension and atherosclerotic vascular disease restrict blood flow to the brain, 
and the vital nutrients and oxygen needed to fuel brain function. Please listen in to episode number 19 here, in which I leverage recent studies on Viagra to make a point about several structure and function aspects of vascular health in aging individuals, both women and men, that are vital and modifiable risk factors for late-onset Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia. Bottom line, optimizing vascular health and blood flow to the brain is a core principle that is integral to a healthy heart-brain axis. So on to today's focus, the pertinent research and findings on the role of estrogen and phytoestrogens in women for optimizing and preserving cognitive function and reducing the risk for dementia and Alzheimer's disease in later years. We'll begin with a topic surrounding estrogen exposures and the risk for Alzheimer's disease and dementia in women that are not often spoken to, as I said earlier, and that is endogenous estrogen exposure. For decades, the research centered around the role of estrogen and estrogen replacement therapy in the risk for late onset Alzheimer's disease has yielded conflicting results that range from harmful to no benefit to protective. And in the last episode, I explained why there is the seemingly conflicting outcomes that are associated with estrogen replacement therapy. So please do listen in to that episode, again, number 20, in which I describe all of the research that dates back for decades now on these conflicting outcomes, but more importantly, why there is that conflict and why ultimately estrogen replacement therapy is a very important option for certain women. Regardless, the preponderance of that research on estrogen therapy and the potential risk for Alzheimer's disease has dealt with exogenous estrogen therapies. Of course, that's the estrogen that's prescribed. However, there is another group of studies that must also be noted, and those are the ones that examine the link between the length of a woman's reproductive years and the endogenous estrogen exposure during those years. Yes, there is another rich world of estrogen studies that has investigated the lifetime exposure to a woman's endogenously produced estrogen on cognitive health and the risk for Alzheimer's later in life. And those studies have shown either a negative association with a longer lifetime exposure of endogenous estrogen, a protective benefit, or no effects. Regardless, there is within the endogenous estrogen studies for and against that does provide 
some very important insights as to why those studies and analyses outcomes vary so much, which we'll highlight here as we move along. First, a couple of studies and analyses that have shown a longer reproductive lifespan and the endogenous estrogen exposure during those years does confer a greater risk for late onset Alzheimer's disease in women. And I'm bringing this up because you may run into that information here and there. These are two very well-known studies, and they are often referred to in terms of the topic of endogenous estrogen exposure and the risk for dementia and Alzheimer's in women. Yes, indeed, a longer reproductive lifespan, which is age at menarche to age at menopause, and possibly more estrogen exposure associated with that time span, has been linked to an increased risk for Alzheimer's and dementia in women. Two studies that we'll briefly review here again, since they are often cited in the literature, determined an increased risk for dementia with a longer reproductive life. One endogenous estrogen analysis was derived from the Rotterdam Elderly Study, a Rotterdam, Netherlands community-based study that was instituted in 1990 and continues to this day. The Rotterdam Elderly Study is often cited in the literature due to its objective, which is to, and I'll quote, to investigate the prevalence, incidence, and determinants of neurogeriatric disorders, cardiovascular diseases, locomotor diseases, and ophthalmological diseases. And there has been a great deal of information derived from the Rotterdam Elderly Study in regards to coronary artery disease, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, and dementia. So the Rotterdam Elderly Study does represent a very important one to include, and I actually have referred to it in previous episodes here, particularly with regard to cardiovascular disease or cardiometabolic disease, which is cardiovascular disease and the metabolic derangements associated with type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. And again, the Rotterdam Elderly Study is a long-term and ongoing study that originally included just under 8,000 individuals, 55 years of age and older, but since it started, it has added cohorts, which are groups with shared characteristics since it began. Its numbers are now close to 15,000 individuals age 40 years and older. So a great population with great information they have extracted on those individuals over the years. Now, a 2001 Rotterdam substudy analysis that included a total of 3,601 women aged 55 years or older 
found an increased risk of dementia was linked to a longer reproductive period in APOE4 carriers only. No clear association with dementia or late onset Alzheimer's disease was observed in non-carriers of the APOE4 variant. And that's why I'm bringing up this particular study, because indeed the APOE4 variant is the strongest genetic risk factor associated with late onset Alzheimer's disease. And I've referred to it here many, many times and have an episode dedicated to that genetic variant because it's a very important one to be aware of. And it's one that I describe in my book, The Diabetic Brain and Alzheimer's Disease, and the number of linkages associated with that variant and the risk for dementia and late-onset Alzheimer's disease. Nevertheless, the Rotterdam study finding highlights the importance of a comprehensive and personalized evaluation of risk factors, such as genetic variants, in weighing the risk for Alzheimer's disease in women, and for that matter, any aging person. In the Rotterdam Elderly Study, the APOE4 status of individuals and a longer reproductive period in women were strong risk factors that increased the risk for dementia. So another factor to weigh into the association of APOE4 and the risk for Alzheimer's disease later in life. And another important takeaway that I want to emphasize again is that this is a modifiable risk factor. It's not a determinant. So it only means that you may have an increased risk, and it could be a significant one depending on other risk factors such as cardiometabolic disease. Next, I'll summarize the findings drawn from two related studies of Swedish women that included a combined 1,364 women and were followed over 44 years. One of those studies, the Gothenburg age 70 birth cohort study, was begun in 1971. And that study analyzed data drawn from another study, the population study of women in Gothenburg, which was started in 1968. In 1992, the two studies, again, the population study of women in Gothenburg and the Gothenburg H70 birth cohort study merged. So the two studies merged and a joint study retrospective analysis concluded that, and I'll quote, we found that Caucasian women with a longer reproductive period and later menopause had an increased risk of dementia and Alzheimer's disease, especially with onset after the age of 85. Lastly, while 24% of the women with a longer reproductive period went on to develop dementia, 16% of the women 
with a shorter reproductive period developed dementia as well. And there you have it, two well-known studies, the Rotterdam elderly study and the combined Gothenburg studies that found an increased risk for dementia was associated with a longer reproductive period in women. However, remember that the Rotterdam elderly study, the APOE4 carrier status was the determinant of that increased risk. Now, in contrast to the outcomes of those two studies, the Rotterdam elderly study and the combined Gothenburg population-based study, the majority of such studies that examine the association between a longer reproductive lifespan and endogenous estrogen exposure have shown a protective effect, and there are good reasons that underlie the latter. As I have emphasized in a number of ways on several episodes here, estrogen supports a healthy brain throughout a woman's lifetime. Now, one key association between estrogen in women and a healthy brain is total brain volume, which is the sum of gray and white matter volumes. The integrity of our cognitive health and capacity in aging is largely determined by keeping our brains and key structures such as the hippocampus from shrinking as we age. Brain imaging studies like MRI and PET scans have repeatedly shown that a gradual and progressive brain or cerebral atrophy, as it is often referred to, which is just referring to shrinkage, that it is a hallmark characteristic that portends the development of late-onset Alzheimer's disease and dementia in later years. Indeed, the rate of brain shrinkage or atrophy over time can serve as a biomarker and predict whether or not someone develops cognitive impairment and dementia later in life. Additionally, considering the linkages between cardiometabolic disease and several risk factors associated with late onset Alzheimer's disease and dementia, would it surprise you to know that the same cerebral and hippocampal atrophy linked to Alzheimer's disease in neuroimaging evaluations have been found to correlate to type 2 diabetes before the onset of cognitive impairment. So just note that well. And I'll repeat, neuroimaging evaluations have been found to correlate to type 2 diabetes before the onset of cognitive impairment. So that is describing the preclinical stage of Alzheimer's disease or late onset Alzheimer's disease and an asymptomatic stage that precedes mild cognitive impairment and or the eventual progression onto a dementia or Alzheimer's disease. 
Yes, the pathological features of cardiometabolic disease and late onset Alzheimer's disease are both marked by cerebral atrophy. And it is an early biomarker that indicates an increased risk. So how do we protect against brain shrinkage? Well, apart from the widely studied and well-known diet, nutrition, and lifestyle factors that prevents cardiometabolic disease as we age and keeps our brain function and matter intact, in women, estrogen protects against brain shrinkage too. Therefore, it is not surprising to note that several key studies have shown that increased endogenous estrogen exposures and a longer reproductive span is associated with larger gray matter volume. Case in point is the findings from a recent collaborative study published in 2021. In that collaborative study, the researchers from Weill Cornell Medicine and the University of Arizona, which included in that collaborative study, cognitively normal women and men that were 40 to 65 years of age, risk factors for late onset Alzheimer's disease, such as family history and or the APOE4 genetic variant were factored in to that study. Now, why were men included? As noted by one of the study authors, the goal, as always, is to understand why Alzheimer's affects more women than men. Now, in that study, which incorporated a reproductive history of women, MRI scans, and cognitive function tests on 99 women, 46 to 58 years of age for their analysis, the study analysis confirmed that postmenopausal and perimenopausal women compared with premenopausal women and including men, they had significantly lower gray matter volume in brain areas such as the hippocampus, entorhinal cortex, and temporal lobe regions. And those are areas of the brain which are heavily affected by Alzheimer's disease. Additionally, the Weill Cornell Medicine study found that greater cumulative exposure to estrogen in life, for example, from having had more children or from having taken menopause hormone therapy, well, all of that may counter a brain shrinking effect. Note the point made about more children and menopause hormone therapy. Several other studies have reported that pregnancies confer an estrogen-mediated neuroprotective effect that extends into later life. A quoted 2020 study finding, and here is the quote, pregnancies may affect brain aging 
by fostering optimal lifetime estrogen exposure. However, how that happens is a subject that requires a lengthy overview, which I will not do here. Nevertheless, numerous studies illustrate that neuroimmune and neuroendocrine adaptations that occur before, during, and after pregnancy underlies the long-term estrogen-related benefits beyond the menopausal years. To be fair, other studies have found that parity, which is the number of times a woman has given birth, is linked to a greater risk for late-onset Alzheimer's disease. However, the preponderance of studies on the topic conclude otherwise. And whenever looking at a group of studies that demonstrate conflicting outcomes, you have to look at study design and what the preponderance of good studies indicate and make an evaluation and judgment as to what those outcomes are actually indicating. So in this case, I am very strongly supporting the findings that show that the number of times a woman has given birth and the estrogen-related benefits associated with it is linked to a greater reduction of risk for late-onset Alzheimer's disease. Now, getting back to the Wild Cornell Medicine study, Dr. Lisa Moscone an associate professor of neuroscience and neurology at Weill Cornell Medicine and lead author of the study stated, our findings suggest that while the menopause transition may bring vulnerability for the female brain, other reproductive history events indicate that a greater estrogen exposure brings resilience instead, end of quote. Now, how does estrogen exposure confer brain resilience in aging women and the reduced risk for dementia and Alzheimer's disease? While brain resilience is nurtured by a cognitive reserve that is enhanced by social enrichment, exercise, and a host, of other dietary and lifestyle factors. And a cognitive reserve can be defined as a reserve of functional neurons and synapses that are integrated into alternate neural networks, which can compensate for the brain damage that occurs in Alzheimer's disease and the subsequent disruption of pre-existing networks. And yes, estrogen also supports a cognitive reserve of neural networks and circuits that are all a component of a more resilient brain. Now, a more resilient brain is dependent on neurogenesis, the genesis, growth, and development of new neurons and glia in the brain. And estrogen is a key modulator of adult hippocampal neurogenesis. Of course, the hippocampus 
and the hippocampal formation is a vital structure and brain region that is a key hub in memory and learning mechanisms and pathways. Additionally, a key estrogen receptor, estrogen receptor beta, mediates the estrogen brain benefits on neuroplasticity and the regulation of an important protein termed brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And first, a reminder to please listen in to the last episode here, number 24, a more robust review of estrogen receptors. Estrogen receptor alpha and estrogen receptor beta are both very, very important receptors in the brain for estrogen. Now, a brief explanation of the two terms I just used for those that are not familiar with them. First is brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, which is a prime protein or neurotrophic factor that plays a principal role in neurogenesis. And I have a, a really nice article on that on my website at thealzheimerssolution.com. Now, neuroplasticity or brain plasticity refers to the brain's malleability, its capacity for adaptive change. It is the brain's ability to integrate change associated with learning and to organize that experience and form new connections between brain cells that supports and enables that process. Bottom line, in women, a longer reproductive lifespan and the increased endogenous estrogen exposure that normally is associated with those years incurs a reduced risk for late onset Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Through the enhancement of neurogenesis, which is the anti-brain shrinkage phenomenon. I must briefly add that diet and lifestyle, again, are core factors for maintaining a healthy brain structure throughout life and promoting brain resilience. Exercise, caloric restriction, and intermittent fasting counters brain atrophy by stimulating neurogenesis. And all of that is just so important for a healthy brain and health span throughout a person's life. Now, the signaling pathways activated by exercise and caloric restriction can also stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis which is the formation and regeneration of new mitochondria. And if you read my book, The Energy Metabolism and Mitochondrial Function in the Brain and the Body is an essential component to a vital health span and a healthy brain throughout your life. Bottom line, Diet and lifestyle factors, including more specific types of diet therapy, such as caloric restriction and ketogenesis and intermittent fasting, 
They are fundamental components to a younger, longer health span. Now, I want to add a bit more to the role of the APOE4 variant and its connection to endogenously produced estrogen and what it may portend for an aging female brain. In another study led by Dr. Lisa Moscone, published in 2022, titled Endogenous and Exogenous Estrogen Exposures, how women's reproductive health can drive brain aging and inform Alzheimer's prevention, many risk factors, including the APOE4 variant, were reviewed. The study's analysis of the existing literature between the years of 1985 and 2021 and their evaluation of several key takeaways between female-specific reproductive risk factors and late-onset Alzheimer's disease risk in women, while they reported several facts and findings with regard to estrogen-related effects on the aging female brain. Apart from the similar findings of several studies with regard to pregnancies and childbirths, including the ones referred to earlier here, the APOE4 genetic variant was also highlighted as a significant risk factor in women, more so than men. If you recall, a longer reproductive life and endogenous estrogen exposure was found to be associated with an increased risk for late-onset Alzheimer's disease. In the Rotterdam Elderly Study, in APOE4 carriers only. Now, in my book, I describe other APOE4-related defects that include reduced hippocampal volume and greater rates of hippocampal atrophy, glucose hypometabolism, and mitochondrial dysfunction. And again, as I have reviewed on previous episodes, especially number 13 here on this channel, women, particularly APOE4 carriers, are at greater risk for all of the above. Indeed, female APOE4 carriers are at a greater risk than men for the neuropathology and brain changes that characterize late-onset Alzheimer's disease and which partially explains the higher prevalence of Alzheimer's in women. For those of you that have followed and listened in to previous podcast episodes here, the APOE4 variant has several known associations to impaired synaptic and neuronal function, including energy metabolism, cholesterol and lipid transport, and the clearance of toxic beta amyloid and tau protein aggregates from the brain. Please do listen in to episode number seven here, in which I delineate the critical role of APOE4 and other genetic variants in cholesterol and lipid transport, which is critical to the integrity 
of the membranes that surround the neurons and their particular role in synapse function. The same with regard to mitochondrial function and energy metabolism, which I reviewed in episode number 13. Now I'll summarize the importance of what I've covered so far. Endogenous estrogen exposure over a woman's reproductive lifespan and the variables such as genetic risk variants and number of childbirths are important risk factors that should be taken into account for any woman undergoing a personalized dementia risk analysis at midlife or soon thereafter. Next, I'll speak to the importance of optimizing estrogen levels beyond menopause and the risk associated with genetic susceptibility variants and other risk factors linked to the increased risk for late-onset Alzheimer's disease. First, as I did in the last episode, and the nod of appreciation I gave to Howard Hodes, I also want to pay homage here to Dr. Moscone for her contributions to the research that has shed priceless insights with regard to estrogen and the workings of the female brain and the risk for Alzheimer's and dementia. Dr. Moscone, Dr. Roberta Diaz-Brinton, Dr. Suzanne Delamonte are a few of the tireless researchers that for many years now have made invaluable contributions to the field of Alzheimer's disease research, and in particular, the multifaceted role of estrogen in a woman's aging brain. So on to exogenous estrogen hormone therapy and phytoestrogens and the potential risk reduction for dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Now, studies that investigated the protective role of hormone replacement therapy and the potential risk reduction and prevention of late-onset Alzheimer's disease have theorized that there is a critical window for estrogen replacement therapy. And in the last episode, I chronicled the history of the critical window theory in which the elite trial, E-L-I-T-E, which was published in 2014, and at the time was the only randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial designed to test the menopausal hormone therapy timing hypothesis. And for those of you that did not listen in to that last episode yet, the critical window hypothesis suggests that hormone therapy initiated soon after menopause rather than later in life determines the success of estrogen replacement therapy. Similarly, the healthy cell bias theory of hormone replacement therapy and menopausal women posits that estrogen therapy is protective 
in a relatively healthy woman and potentially harmful and metabolically damaged cells associated with age-related disorders such as cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. Unfortunately, both the critical window and healthy cell bias theories are often used interchangeably to infer the same with regard to the timing of estrogen replacement therapy in menopausal women. Yes, the timing of estrogen replacement therapy in aging women certainly is an important factor as it pertains to its potential neurological benefits. But the health of a person is also an important factor, and it is one that should be taken into account in a woman with regard to hormone replacement therapy, regardless of the time of life it applies to. And that perspective also applies to both women and men. That is why I keep harping on the importance of a personalized risk assessment and evaluation. Many factors, including a polygenic risk or many genetic risk factors, polygenic risk assessments should be weighed into the multifactorial and comprehensive assessment of an individual's heritable risk and predispositions for one health condition or another. Now, let's review the outcomes of recent studies that can be factored into the potential benefits for hormone replacement therapy in menopausal women. And I'll start with one study published in 2021 conducted at the University of Arizona Health Sciences. That study was a retrospective analysis of insurance data that included 379,352 women, mostly Caucasian women, aged 45 years or older. The analysis found that women who received menopausal hormone therapy for six years or greater were 79% less likely to develop Alzheimer's disease and 77% less likely to develop any neurodegenerative disease. The any neurodegenerative disease reference means that the analysis included the relative risk of combined neurodegenerative diseases in hormone therapy users and non-users. Now, the combined neurodegenerative diseases included in the analysis are Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, and amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, often referred to as ALS. And what was important about the study findings are the distinctions that it was, number one, not just all about estrogen, meaning progesterone 
and hormone combination therapies was factored into it. Number two, natural or synthetic hormone replacement therapy was factored into it. And number three, the route of administration, which means oral or transdermal therapy was included in the analysis. And the results are, one, natural hormone therapy over synthetic hormone replacement therapy was most beneficial. And two, oral hormone replacement therapy was best for the combined neurodegenerative diseases or all of the aforementioned neurodegenerative diseases. And three, transdermal hormone replacement therapy was best for dementia, risk reduction, and the most important conclusion that was put forth by Dr. Roberta Diaz-Brinton, the lead author of the research study, and I'll quote what she said, which is, what is important about this study is that it advances the use of precision hormone therapies in the prevention of neurodegenerative diseases, including Alzheimer's. Note the reference to a precision hormone therapy approach in Dr. Britton's quote I just included. The use of precision with regard to hormone therapy is a contextual reference to a precision medicine approach, which is the same point I often make about a personalized medicine approach. The emphasis of a precision hormone therapy approach was a strong point of reference and rationale made in the University of Arizona Health Sciences study. Why? The lack of a precision medicine approach was indeed a major factor that underscored the outcomes from several other key studies that found no beneficial or harmful effect of hormone therapy on cognitive function. Such conflicting outcomes from those clinical trials were conducted in postmenopausal women with no menopausal symptoms and who had aged past the critical window, a timing hypothesis for the efficacy of hormone therapy. In my book, I include an introduction and clarification on what precision, personalized, and functional medicine terms are, which are references to medical paradigms that are intended to go beyond the typical diagnosis and drug-centered model of medicine that is a component of most Western medicine approaches. Now, here is a paragraph from that section of my book. A precision medicine approach is characterized by a more robust incorporation of biological 
markers or biomarkers, along with genetic profiles and lifestyle factors in the evaluation of a person's current and future risks to their health and the individualized medical and holistic interventions that may be required to prevent or arrest a disease process. Now, back to the University of Arizona Health Sciences study that was titled Association Between Menopausal Hormone Therapy and the Risk of Neurodegenerative Diseases Implications for Precision Hormone Therapy. In an interview, Dr. Brinton further remarked, and I'll quote, this reduction in risk for Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, and dementia means these diseases share a common driver regulated by estrogen. And if there are common drivers, there can be common therapies. What Dr. Brinton was implying by that statement was that a precision medical evaluation of a woman's risk for a neurodegenerative disease should include a more comprehensive analysis of estrogen-related risk factors that may be the drivers of that risk for neurodegenerative diseases. So, common drivers regulated by estrogen implies that there are several metabolic pathways in which estrogen exerts a major influence. In the last episode, I reviewed the role of estrogen in cardiometabolic health, which can be dysregulated by estrogen deficiency in perimenopause and postmenopause. And in episode number 13, I covered the role of estrogen in glucose and energy metabolism and the neuroenergetic crisis that ensues at perimenopause and postmenopause due to the precipitous declines in estrogen and its role in glucose hypometabolism. I also talked about the role of estrogen in mediating oxidative stress in the brain and how that was yet another estrogen-related brain benefit. So indeed, there are critical estrogen-related drivers that are influenced by declining estrogen levels in a woman at midlife and in later life, which in turn can act as potent risk factors of Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases in a woman. And that leads us to another recent study led by Dr. Roberta Diaz-Brinton in which critical estrogen-related risk factors at midlife and at the menopausal transition was deemed a critical neuroenergetic transition stage derangement that predicts and determines the stability of cognitive function in women in later life, and that is brain glucose and energy metabolism. In the early 2000s, a body of research centered around the role of glucose hypometabolism 
in the risk for neurodegenerative diseases began to emerge. It was about the same time that I began to connect the dots between brain glucose metabolism, brain insulin resistance, and mitochondrial function as a powerful set of interrelated risk factors for late-onset Alzheimer's disease and dementia, and which was also an inspiring body of research that led to my book. Within that body of research, I began to notice a small and specific set of studies that focused on the role of estrogen as a governing factor that regulated glucose metabolism in women. It was an absolute revelation and inspired my immersion into the studies that were few at the time with regard to the estrogen glucose hypometabolism linkage that was a major risk factor in women whose estrogen levels plummeted in menopause. While the role of estrogen in glucose metabolism was not a new finding, how glucose hypometabolism in a woman's brain set forth a metabolic derangement that severely compromised the structure and function of the brain, well, that was a whole new body of research. And here is one of the alarming and pathological changes associated with postmenopausal estrogen declines that takes place in a woman's body and brain. Without the ability to burn glucose, the brain cannibalizes fats from brain tissue, namely myelin, to support energy metabolism. When glucose metabolism is blunted, as in glucose hypometabolism. And for those of you that are not familiar with the term myelin, well, myelin is a fatty and insulating nerve sheath substance that wraps around the axon extension of nerves. And of course, the axon is the long extension from neurons that goes on to make thousands of other connections with other neurons. And myelin, which wraps around that axon, is critical to the speed of conduction of nerve impulses along the axon. In the brain, the myelin sheath and myelinated axons is what comprises white matter. And of course, the loss of white matter and gray matter in the central nervous system are pathological hallmarks of late-onset Alzheimer's disease that is commonly referred to as brain atrophy or cerebral atrophy, which represents the loss of brain tissue, the shrinkage of the brain, and the vital brain cells and synapses that comprise much of that brain matter. In fact, there is a solid rationale based on research evidence and analysis that white matter loss precedes gray matter loss and that the former white matter loss is associated with the preclinical stage of late onset Alzheimer's disease. And that, of course, is the asymptomatic stage 
of Alzheimer's that precedes more noticeable cognitive impairment or mild cognitive impairment as it is often referred to. Needless to say, all of what I just covered with regard to postmenopausal estrogen declines and its link to glucose hypometabolism in women is a principal component that underlies the increased risk for late-onset Alzheimer's disease and dementia in women. And I'll remind you to please listen in to episode number 13 titled Glucose Hypometabolism, Impairments in Mitochondrial Function, and Oxidative Stress as Major Risk Factors for Alzheimer's Disease. For the rest of the story that I am sharing with you here in part right now with regard to glucose hypometabolism. Now, I made this point with regard to glucose hypometabolism and a women's risk for late onset Alzheimer's disease in part because it is such a rich story. And I failed to make the point about the cannibalizing of fats and myelin linked to brain glucose hypometabolism in episode number 13. Secondly, it was a timely recap here as it sets up another significant study that Dr. Brinton also led in which Dr. Moscone also collaborated on. And I'll quote what Dr. Brinton said. Those findings demonstrated that the menopausal stage has pronounced effects on the brain's structure, connectivity, and energy metabolism and provides a neurological framework for both vulnerability and resilience. So what she's talking about there is that this whole neuroenergetic crisis that begins to ensue because of estrogen declines in a premenopausal and postmenopausal woman is a critical framework from which we can understand and begin to even assess a woman's vulnerability and or resilience to Alzheimer's disease as they age. And just as importantly, they quoted, or Dr. Brenton quoted, were independent. All of those factors that I just talked about, they were independent of age, APOE4 status, hormone therapy usage, and hysterectomy status. So that vulnerability or opportunity for enhancing brain resilience was very much connected to this estrogen energy metabolism construct that occurs in a woman's brain, independent of several other key risk factors. Now, many, but not all women, are potentially vulnerable to the endocrine hormonal shift that occurs during the menopausal transition. Regardless of the key factors or key risk factors such as APOE4 variant that are linked 
to the potential risk for the brain damage associated with it. And that midlife and menopausal transition for any woman can either morph into an increased risk for late-onset Alzheimer's disease and dementia or be a window for enabling a more resilient brain. Now, there is evidence that some women that choose not to include hormone replacement therapy at midlife will adapt to this neuroenergetic shift that occurs at the menopausal transition, which, of course, depends on numerous risk factors related to a woman's unique history, including nutrition and lifestyle. And with that, I'll leave behind all of what we've covered so far with regard to key risk factors associated with endogenous estrogen and estrogen replacement therapy and what it all means in the risk for late onset Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And I'll end with a brief review on diet and nutritional therapies specifically for an aging woman. Diet and nutrition in particular, the role of polyphenols or phytochemicals that fall into a class of plant estrogens or phytoestrogens are certainly a key factor, which may serve as targeted interventions and optimal alternatives to estrogen replacement therapy. In episode number 14, I provided a review of the prime nutraceutical, nutrient, and dietary interventions that support a healthy aging brain and protect against late-onset Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Additionally, I emphasize the research with respect to the Mediterranean diet, the MIND diet, and my own modified and personalized MIND diet that I describe in my book, The Improved MIND Diet. There is a bounty of body-brain nourishing phytochemicals and nutrients and a science-based rationale for the application of these diets and the support of the heart-brain and the gut-brain axis. While these phytochemical compounds and nutrients are requisite components to a healthy aging brain and health span for both men and women, a personalized and targeted integration of these diets and specific nutrients based on an individual's needs will invariably yield the most optimal outcomes. That is precisely my message in the Improved Mind Diet, which is currently only available to subscribers at thealzheimerssolution.com. And you do have to ask me for that. Now in line with the topic here on this episode, the specific and more targeted needs that aging women require to buffer against the risk for cognitive decline and impairment as they age includes a tailored diet and nutrition template based on biomarker-guided evidence. For example, the assessment of genetic risk variance 
such as the APOE4 variant, which we've talked a lot about here today and on other episodes. And another variant, which is the MTHFR677T variant, which is associated with folate metabolism. And of course, APOE4 is linked to nutrients and fat metabolism and their transport. The assessment of such genetic variants and what it means in your risk for how nutrition interacts with these variants are priceless evaluations in designing nutrigenetic-based diet and nutrition programs. On the other hand, how foods and nutrients affect genetic expression patterns is a reference to another model of nutritional genomics, which is referred to as nutrigenomics. And for those of you listening in who are not familiar with the terms I just referenced, which is nutrigenomic and nutrigenetic, they are both references to gene, nutrient, and gene diet interactions and their potential applications to disease and health states. More specifically, they are both centered on the scientific study of how food affects a person's genes, as in genetic expression patterns, and that is referred to as nutrigenomics, and how a person's genes and the genetic variants that I mentioned and many others affect the way the body responds to food which is what I was talking about in reference to nutrigenetics and how all of that plays in with regard to the prevention, treatment, and management of chronic diseases or in optimizing one's health span, which is the point I made above with regard to the APOE4 and MTHFR variants. Needless to say, such nutritional genomic evaluations are invaluable for designing and implementing a personalized diet and nutrition program that is based on an individual's genetic makeup, their genotype, versus a one-size-fits-all dietary regimen. Now, getting back to dietary and nutrient specifics that pertain more to women, particularly women at the menopausal transition. I'll next get to the role of phytoestrogens in the menopausal transition and beyond as promised. First, a reminder that in episode number 15, I provided a brief overview on various dietary carotenoids and carotenoid supplements, particularly astaxanthin, which is a powerful carotenoid found in crustaceans such as krill and of course in krill oil products that have become very very popular and then there is lycopene zeaxanthin and lutein which are abundant in leafy greens and other vegetables and fruits like so many of these body brain nourishing phytochemicals derived from foods and beverages 
Carotenoids also provide an outstanding antioxidant and anti-inflammatory benefit. A study published in May of 2022 found that people with the highest levels of certain carotenoids, particularly lutein, zeaxanthin, and beta-cryptoxanthin, in their blood were less likely to develop dementia decades later than people with lower levels of these antioxidant carotenoids. And I'll just mention the beta-cryptoxanthin, which is not often mentioned as a carotenoid in various things that you may have read, is found in many fruits, such as citrus and mangoes, papaya and peaches. Another recent study published in June of 2022 determined that while men and women eat about the same amount of carotenoids, the requirements for carotenoids, such as lutein and zeaxanthin in women, are much higher due to their increased vulnerability to age-related macular degeneration and late-onset Alzheimer's disease. And by now, you likely know that eye diseases, such as age-related macular degeneration, cataracts, and diabetes-related eye disease, are linked to an increased risk for late-onset Alzheimer's disease. Another aspect of that vulnerability in women and their increased need for more carotenoid intake is the fact that women store these fat-soluble carotenoids in their body fat, which makes them less available to the brain. Then there is the multifactorial benefit of polyphenols and other phytochemicals, which I have spoken to many times here on these Alzheimer's Solution Revolution podcasts. In brief, polyphenols and the phytochemical sulforaphane, which I have talked about in past episodes, which is found in cruciferous and other vegetables, while these types of phytochemicals support living younger, longer by means of the following mechanisms. And this is the list. And here we go. They mediate direct and powerful antioxidant and anti-inflammatory support. They enhance epigenetic activation and regulation of antioxidant and anti-inflammatory pathways. They function as signaling agents that enhance neuroplasticity mechanisms. They support a favorable gut microbiota balance. They strengthen the gut and blood-brain barrier integrity. They enhance brain detoxification. They support and regulate energy metabolism. They function as powerful anti-cancer agents and they act as phytoestrogens that bind to estrogen receptors. And plant-based estrogens, which again are phytoestrogens, found in soy and other foods, 
and botanical and herbal extracts have been shown to protect the brain from the hallmark lesions, the plaques and tangles associated with the brain damage in the progression of Alzheimer's disease and dementia and aging. A family of these phytoestrogens fall into the subclass of flavonoids, and one in particular are isoflavones. And isoflavones, particularly genistine and daidzine, derived from soy and other foods, also function as antioxidants and weak estrogens, and thus modulate the favorable metabolism of endogenous estrogens that are protective against cancer. However, the estrogen-like effects of isoflavones should be carefully evaluated in a woman deemed to have an increased risk for cancer. Another subclass of polyphenolic non-flavonoids are stilbenoids, also known as phytoalexins. And I talk a lot about one stilbenoid resveratrol in past episodes because resveratrol has multifactorial benefits in the health of the body and brain. Again, resveratrol is a stilbenoid, often classified as a non-flavonoid polyphenol, which also includes in that family lignans, phenolic acids, xanthones, and other compounds. Stilbenoids are often described as antimicrobial compounds produced by various plants in response to fungal infections and what is termed microbial stress. And it is this microbial stress response and other environmental stressors in plants that gives rise to the production of many types of phytochemicals, such as stilbenoids. In terms of health benefits, resveratrol, and more specifically, transresveratrol, the most bioavailable form found in nature, and the most popularized of all stilbenoids, is a prime nutrient and supplement in the protection and enhancement of cardiovascular and neurological health in aging individuals, and for its role in lifespan extension. Indeed, with regard to the needs of women in the menopausal transition and beyond, the antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and phytoestrogenic mediated benefits of isoflavones and other polyphenols such as resveratrol, genistein, and daidzine, and another class of polyphenols we'll speak about here soon, lignans. Well, they have all been long associated with many longevity health benefits. Now, before I provide the brief overview on these polyphenols, how do these phytoestrogens function and impart all the estrogen-related benefits that are associated with them? Well, the structural, 
similarity of plant estrogens to estradiol, the primary form of estrogen, is why they are referred to as phytoestrogens. Like estrogen, phytoestrogens function by their binding to the estrogen receptor. And again, that's the estrogen receptor alpha and estrogen receptor beta. And do please listen into the previous episode for an overview on estrogen receptors that I detailed there. Numerous studies have investigated and defined the cardiometabolic and neuroprotective benefits of phytoestrogens, such as resveratrol and genistine for aging women, which may serve as potential hormone replacement therapies for women that prefer to not use traditional hormone replacement therapy. A reminder, I reviewed the important benefits of polyphenols in cardiometabolic health in perimenopausal and postmenopausal women in the previous episode, number 20, which included the vital vasoactive or blood vessel dilation component to vascular health and the prevention of dementia and Alzheimer's disease in aging individuals. The vital role of polyphenols in cardio and cerebrovascular health that impart profound cognitive health benefits include the anti-inflammatory and antioxidant protection we've talked about here numerous times, and the improved vasodilation, blood flow, and microcirculatory density into the brain, the health of the body-brain vascular system and in particular, the brain microvascular structure and function are at the heart of a healthy brain. So on now to this more specific review of key nutrients, lignans, resveratrol, and the isoflavones that I've spoken about, genistein and daisine. And I'll begin now with lignans. As many of you already know, lignans are found in flaxseed and other seeds, and they are also derived from nuts, olives, and olive oil, legumes and grains, vegetables, and even coffee, tea, and wine. Flaxseed, however, is by far the richest source of what are termed lignin precursors that are converted to bioactive lignans. Lignans are also a source of a beneficial omega-3 fatty acid, alpha-linolenic acid, that can be converted into EPA and DHA, the essential omega-3 fatty acids. However, the efficiency of that enzymatic conversion of alpha-linolenic acid is dependent on cofactors such as zinc, magnesium, and B6. Now, the bioactive lignans, or the lignans that have a biological effect, are enterolignans, termed enterodiol, and enterolactone, which are derived from gut microbiota metabolism of dietary lignans found in flaxseed, 
or linseed, as it is referred to in Europe. Such enterolignans have long been associated with anti-cancer activity, osteoporosis prevention, and cardiovascular health. In 2005, a Dutch study that included 403 women and their total years of dietary lignin intake since menopause concluded that a higher dietary intake of lignans is associated with better cognitive function in postmenopausal women. And that Dutch study finding was associated with a longer time span group, which included 207 women and 20 to 30 years of that higher lignin intake compared to the shorter time span group of 197 women and an 8 to 12 year lignin intake. And the dietary source of lignin dietary precursors in the Dutch study was grain products, mainly bread, coffee, and tea. And vegetables actually contributed most to that lignin intake. Now imagine if a higher food source of lignans such as flaxseed constituted a more significant percentage of such a diet. Next, I want to share about an additional benefit to your brain and cognitive health associated with lignans and other polyphenols. And please bear with me as what I am about to share here is a very brief description of a key role of calcium in the central nervous system. In the brain, calcium functions as a signaling molecule that is critical to molecular cascades within the neuron that are central to learning and memory processing. And the regulation of those calcium levels in neurons is a tightly regulated process that is vital in the integrity of the neuron and to those memory and learning processes. Neuronal calcium is also taken up by the mitochondria to support the regulation of intracellular calcium levels, and calcium participates in energy metabolism dynamics. Undoubtedly, calcium is a prominent mediator of diverse effects in the optimal functioning of neurons and in cognitive health. However, if too much calcium is allowed into the cell, it becomes a toxic agent that severely disrupts mitochondrial and cellular homeostasis and leads to neuronal death. Thus, the regulation of calcium flux in and out of the neuron is crucial. And this excess calcium influx into the neuron and toxicity associated with it is termed excitotoxicity. 
And that excitotoxic cascade begins with the toxic overstimulation of several key neuronal membrane receptors by calcium. This excitotoxic mechanism associated with Alzheimer's disease and dementia is so paramount to the pathogenesis and progression of Alzheimer's disease that there is an FDA-approved medication, memantine, that was the first treatment approved for moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease in 2003. Now, that brain calcium preview serves as a setup for the study finding with regard to lignans. In an in vitro study utilizing mouse embryo neuronal cells, it was demonstrated that flax lignans protected neurons from neurotoxic calcium influx overload by inhibiting a key calcium receptor that is central to the regulation of calcium entering the neuron, and that is the NMDA receptor. And note that memantine, that FDA-approved drug that I just mentioned, functions as a partial NMDA antagonist, meaning it blunts the excitotoxic over activation of that NMDA receptor. Now, for those of you that are hearing this calcium and NMDA receptor link for the first time, here is how it participates in this calcium excitotoxicity linkage. The regulation of calcium influx into the neuron and the role of membrane receptors, such as the NMDA receptor is a critical pathway in preventing excessive calcium-mediated excitotoxic events that constitute a principal neuropathological feature in the development and progression of Alzheimer's disease. In Alzheimer's disease, the very smallest aggregates of beta-amyloid peptide, known as oligomers, are well-known synaptic disruptors. And one mechanism associated with that disruption is through the excitotoxic overactivation of the NMDA receptor. The excitotoxic cascades mediated by beta-amyloid peptides and other so-called insults are a major component to the synaptic degeneration and loss associated with Alzheimer's disease. And many of these neurotoxic events occur unnoticed in the earliest stages of late-onset Alzheimer's disease. These excitotoxic cascades associated with calcium and the so-called synaptic glutamate receptors and channels is such a, an important understanding in the calcium hypothesis of brain aging and Alzheimer's disease 
and how late onset Alzheimer's disease progresses that I devoted a section to it in my book, The Diabetic Brain and Alzheimer's Disease. So that concludes this calcium excitotoxic description and the importance of phytonutrients such as lignans in protecting the brain from such toxic events associated with the onset and progression of Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases. And of course, apart from the role of lignans and other polyphenols and phytoestrogens in women, these phytochemicals also benefit men too. I'll conclude this brief lignan overview by acknowledging that the research on the role of lignans in cognitive health and the prevention of dementia is scant. There are very few studies, such as the one I cited above, which is odd considering their immense health benefits I spoke to, as in that Dutch study and the mouse embryo cell studies. However, there is an increasing number of studies on Chinese herbs and other botanical extracts as a valuable source of lignin precursors. And that research is accruing. It is increasing, particularly with regard to a Chinese medicinal herb known as, and this is the Chinese transliteration of it, Wu Weizi, spelled W-U, W-E-I-Z-I. And Weizi and the traditional botanical name for it, which is Shisandra chinensis, is a fruit, also known as five-flavor fruit, that is often sold as Shisandra berries. And please do not confuse these Shisandra berries that are frequently used in traditional Chinese medicine herbal therapeutics. Please do not confuse them with another Chinese superfood and tonic herb, which is Lyceum barbarum fruit, or better known here as goji berries which is also a highly revered Chinese food and tonic. In vitro studies on Shisandra chinensis, and I'll just refer to it as Shisandra from here on, have shown that it is neuroprotective and it enhances cognitive function, which is mediated via anti-amyloid processing and antioxidant anti-inflammatory benefits. And many botanical and Chinese herbal extracts have shown the same thing. Furthermore, many other studies have demonstrated the liver protection and cardioprotective effects derived from schisandra lignans that undoubtedly contributes to the vital heart-brain and liver-brain access linkages in the prevention of late-onset Alzheimer's disease and dementia. For a more in-depth review 
of the liver's role in the disposal of toxic beta amyloid cleared from the brain, please listen in to episode number 17 here at the Alzheimer's Solution Revolution show in which I describe the role of the gut-brain axis in brain detoxification. I'll leave that lignant discussion with that mini review of Shisandra and move on to more widely studied phytoestrogens termed stilbenoids and, of course, isoflavones, both of which I've mentioned here previously, but we're going to dive in a little deeper here. Let's begin with resveratrol, a stilbene or stilbenoid, as I want to highlight the results of the resveratrol for Healthy Aging in Women trial that was published in 2020. And the acronym for resveratrol for Healthy Aging in Women is RESHAW. And I'll be using that term to replace the whole study title as we move along here. The double-blind Reshaw placebo-controlled trial was designed to evaluate the effects of resveratrol over 24 months on cognition, cerebrovascular function, bone health, cardiometabolic markers, and well-being in postmenopausal women. Before I share a few more facts with regard to the Reshaw study findings, I want to make a point about bone loss and its link to the risk for late-onset Alzheimer's disease in women. Studies dating back to 2009 have determined that bone loss in women reflects a shared pathophysiology with late-onset Alzheimer's disease. In other words, just as cardiometabolic disease is a significant risk factor for late-onset Alzheimer's disease due to the numerous biological pathways and features that the two diseases share, osteoporosis, reduced bone density, and bone loss also appears to reflect an undercurrent of disease pathway that connects it to late-onset Alzheimer's disease. As I detailed in my book, the shared pathophysiology between cardiometabolic disease and late-onset Alzheimer's disease is represented by insulin resistance, hyperglycemia, and glucose dysmetabolism mitochondrial dysfunction, and chronic inflammation and oxidative stress. And bone tissue is an endocrine organ that secretes proteins such as osteocalcin, which are implicated in the regulation of fat mass, glucose metabolism, and insulin sensitivity. Indeed, there is a bone-brain hard axis in Alzheimer's disease that should be factored into an aging woman's risk for late onset Alzheimer's disease. I'll share more about that critical protein that I mentioned 
osteocalcin that illustrates the bone-brain axis in Alzheimer's disease in a future podcast soon. Now, several studies, including the Reshaw study, have shown that resveratrol provides several key benefits that include the restoration of the blood-brain barrier function and structure. It improves blood flow to the brain and cerebral blood flow, enhances nitric oxide synthesis and vasodilation, supports hippocampal neurogenesis and mitochondrial biogenesis, modulates insulin sensitivity, stimulates autophagy, promotes longevity, resveratrol binds to and activates estrogen receptors and regulates estrogen metabolism. And like all the polyphenols and botanical and herbal extracts I have spoken about here, and particularly in episode number 14, resveratrol is a premier neuroprotective anti-inflammatory and antioxidant compound. I'll take the opportunity here to emphasize that one of the major detriments associated with postmenopausal estrogen declines is the loss of antioxidant-mediated benefits that estrogen provides, as I emphasized earlier in this show. With respect to a host of findings that examine resveratrol's effect on brain aging and cognitive health, resveratrol was shown to be neuroprotective, supports and enhances synaptic plasticity and cognitive function, protects against tau and beta-amyloid-induced neurotoxicity, and improves memory performance. And I'll add a little side note here that the form of resveratrol, that is a bioactive form found in foods, is transresveratrol. And it is the form that is the most widely studied. Now, many of the body-brain benefits imparted by resveratrol are a result of its well-studied role in the activation of sirtuins, namely SIRT1, and that's spelled S-I-R-T-1, a protein and a member of the sirtuin family of proteins that are NAD, N-A-D, dependent deacetylized enzymes that is linked to longevity pathways. And that stands for nicotinamide, adenosine, dinucleotide. And of course, I'll just use NAD moving forward here. Now, many of you by now have been exposed to all the buzz surrounding NAD supplements and NAD precursors, such as nicotinamide riboside and NAD's role as an essential cofactor in mitochondrial dynamics and energy metabolism, and in DNA repair and longevity pathways. NAD is not only crucial to the above-stated health span benefits, it functions independently of sirtuins. 
the decline of NAD in aging individuals is strongly associated with cardiometabolic disease and the risk for late-onset Alzheimer's disease. CERT-1 and a related sirtuin, CERT-3, are highly dependent on NAD. And the benefits of those two sirtuins in a healthy heart-brain axis is ultimately NAD-dependent. CERT-3 is a primary sirtuin in the mitochondria and plays a vital role in mitochondrial integrity and functional efficiency. The point of that NAD side note here is to emphasize the importance of NAD in CERT-1 and CERT-3, both which confer a broad range of health and health span benefits. Additionally, sirtuins such as CERT-1 modulate a wide range of gene expression and physiological processes, including DNA protein modifications, DNA methylation and DNA repair, regulating the inflammatory response, energy metabolism, cancer suppression, protecting against metabolic disease, buffering against cellular stress responses, regulating autophagy, and inhibiting cell death known as apoptosis, and they promote lifespan extension. Lastly, CERT1 and CERT3 are activated by fasting and caloric restriction and nutrients such as resveratrol and other polyphenols are collectively referred to as dietary sirtuin activating compounds. The diverse and incredible range of dietary sirtuin activating compounds and their health and longevity benefits underscore just how important such nutrition and lifestyle choices are to a healthier body and brain and living younger, longer. We'll end this longer-than-usual episode with another class of polyphenols known as isoflavones, which, like still beans and lignans, also are phenolic phytoestrogens that fall in into the subclass of flavonoids. And two well-studied isoflavones, genistein and daisine, derived from soybeans and soy foods, such as tempeh and tofu, and to a lesser extent, other foods, including nuts, seeds, lentils, vegetables, and fruits. They are known as estrogen mimetics, or weak estrogens. However, weak estrogens as phytoestrogenic compounds do bind to estrogen receptors, but their estrogenic effect on the body is not as biologically potent as what a person normally produces. And hence, they can actually exert anti-estrogenic activity, which is one of their beneficial effects. 
A great deal of research has focused on these isoflavones and their anti-estrogenic activity in their protective role against certain cancers. Now, I just want to mention briefly other lesser-known isoflavones that are present in soy or derived from soy through gut metabolism. And one lesser-known soy isoflavone is a glycetine. And, of course, glycetine, like the other soy-related isoflavones, such as genistine and daisine, are present in many other foods. And another isoflavone metabolite derived from gut microbiota metabolism of genistine and daisine is equal, which is spelled E-Q-U-O-L, which has gained a considerable amount of attention and research of late. Regardless, like all phytoestrogens such as genistein and daisine and their metabolites such as equal, phytoestrogenic compounds exert their effects primarily through binding to estrogen receptors. And again, please consult with your physician if you do have a history of cancer or are genetically predisposed to an increased risk for cancer before supplementing with higher levels of such isoflavones that are very popular in some supplements. Now, another important understanding with regard to isoflavones and other polyphenols is that they also function as anti-estrogenic compounds by inhibiting a critical enzyme, the so-called aromatase enzyme. Remarkably, apart from their classification as phytoestrogens, these phytonutrients also inhibit the aromatase enzyme and decrease aromatase gene expression that is central to estrogen production. And why is that important? First, all estrogens are synthesized from androgen precursors such as testosterone in a chemical reaction known as aromatization. The aromatase enzyme catalyzes the conversion of androgens to estrogens in many tissues, including the ovaries and testes and fat tissue. While estrogens derived from aromatization is beneficial in younger women, in postmenopausal female breast and fat tissue, localized synthesis of estrogen is what potentially drives the increased risk for breast cancer and other cancers in postmenopause. Now, please note that a more complete and thorough explanation for this systemic and localized function and effects of estrogen in younger females versus postmenopausal women takes some time to fully elucidate, which is not the purpose of this episode. So I'll not do that here. Nevertheless, 
The point in this emphasis with regard to the aromatase enzyme is that phytoestrogens in part function as aromatase inhibitors that block the conversion of androgens, such as testosterone again, to estrogen, and thus may protect women against estrogen-dependent breast cancer as they age. And that is such an important factor in the risk and traditional treatment for breast cancer that aromatase inhibitor drugs are considered a first-line hormone therapy option. And many studies have shown that botanical and herbal-derived flavonoids and other phytochemicals are powerful inhibitors of the aromatase enzyme. There is the potential for flavonoids and other phytochemicals in the aromatase inhibition pathway, which may impart an anti-estrogenic effect and thus may be vital interventions in certain circumstances and ultimately benefit women greatly as they age. A word of caution, however, as apart from a healthy diet that provides an abundance of polyphenols that are major factors in living younger, longer, supplementing with higher doses of these phytochemicals and supplements should be tailored and supervised by a professional, especially with regard to phytoestrogenic or anti-estrogenic therapies for women as they age. There is also the potential cross-reaction of certain polyphenols with drugs in their metabolism. Again, I'll stress that any history or deemed risk for cancer must be undertaken with a medical professional before dosing with supplements containing these powerful phytochemical compounds. Nevertheless, to complete the circle here, as I come close to ending this show, my intent between the last episode and this one is to report on the risks associated with the decline of estrogen in premenopause and in the years that follow as a risk factor for cardiometabolic disease and dementia. And that phytoestrogens derived from foods and herbal medicines are an invaluable source of estrogen-mediated benefits for women and thus may function as estrogen replacement therapy options in the protection against Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia. I'll end by adding that there is yet another family of phytoestrogenic compounds that I have not mentioned here yet, and those are coumarin, spelled C-O-U-M-A-R-I-N-S. Coumarins are another class of flavonoids which are also derived from many foods, beverages, and herbs. And a group of coumarins known as coumastans also fall into the classification of phytoestrogens. One coumastan in particular, coumastrol, is an ubiquitous phytoestrogenic compound found in many of the same foods 
as soy isoflavones, namely soybeans, as well as other legumes and other foods. And cumestrol is present in many medicinal herbs that have a long history of use in traditional medicine cultures, such as traditional Chinese medicine. An abbreviated list of commonly used cumestrol-containing herbs includes the following, a form of cinnamon known as Chinese cinnamon, Eleutherococcus centococcus, better known as Siberian ginseng, a type of date known as jujube, commonly used in many Chinese herbal formulas and decoctions, as well as puraria in Chinese medicine, better known as gegen, G-E-G-E-N. And then many familiar herbs known to people that follow the herbal medicine culture, particularly Western herbal medicine traditions, which is nettles, cat's claw, passion flower, St. John's worth, horse chestnut, chamomile, and licorice, which again is often incorporated into Chinese herbal medicines and decoctions. And that concludes this very lengthy episode. And with that, I want to thank you for listening in. And particularly if you were able to make it to the end here, I'll be back very soon with another special episode that I promise you'll find fascinating to listen into and learn more about the bone brain axis in Alzheimer's disease that I talked about briefly earlier in this episode. So thanks again. God bless and goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Alzheimer's Solution Show. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a comment and subscribe wherever you listen in to your favorite podcasts. Share with friends and family on your favorite social media channel, such as Twitter or Facebook. 